from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings, welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge I persevere, but if I now do me a favor, favor. let me in here, then we can find a rhyme to fill in space and drop the as always, this podcast is brought to you by the Snot Burglar. Hey everybody, Eric P here. Don't you hate it when snot gets all crazy and messes your life up? Well, now you don't have to worry about it. Just go to my website, fbesp.org, and click the Snot Burglar banner. It's easy, and you can link it with your MyFace account. Say goodbye to annoying snot accidents. All right, look, there is no Snot Burglar. I'm not actually advertising anything. You've all probably figured this out, but I hate ads on podcasts, although I know it's necessary. Best of the Left does the best ads on any podcast, so listen to that. I've started up a new website. It's called Paper Action, and it's at paperaction.wordpress.com. You should all check it out. I've been active with the East Timor and Indonesia Action Network for many years, as well as Amnesty International, and in, in many ways, those organizations are founded on a simple premise. We are members of democratic countries, and we have the ability to influence what happens in those democracies. And one of the best ways to influence what happens in a legislative sense is by writing letters. So that's what paper action is all about. Uh, each month, or hopefully each month, I have no idea how much time I'm going to be able to devote to this once school starts, but the idea is that every month I will pick a different topic and I will tell people, hey, write letters about this issue. And the first one I wrote about is um, voter ID laws, and they're totally bogus, and there's no evidence of problem related to voter fraud, and there's a lot of evidence that suggests that they're just a ploy to disenfranchise voters, and there's a lot of information if you go to paperaction.wordpress.com, check it out, and write a letter, and... Tell people about it and sign up for the RSS feed so that each month you can get an update about a letter you can write or a series of letters you can write to do something beyond just, I mean, look, online uh, petitions and stuff, those things are great. Calling your elected officials is even better, but writing letters, uh, according to a number of sources, and they're linked on the Paper Action website, uh, writing letters is perhaps the most effective way to communicate with legislators aside from in-person meetings. So if you can go meet with your legislators in person, great. If not, uh, <clears throat> paper action is the next best way. Ugh. We had our road trip, and the movie is up. So if you haven't seen the epic road trip movie 2012, check it out. I will put a link on our uh, website here. And uh, many of you have already seen it and given awesome feedback. Thank you very much for your kind responses. And, uh, yeah, check out the epic road trip movie 2012 if you haven't seen it already. The news this week, the big news, uh, I'm not even going to talk about it much, but there's this guy named Aiken. He's a Republican. He's running for the Senate in the United States. I think, uh, and he did this interview where he said, uh, someone asked him, would you make an exception, because he's anti-abortion, so somebody asked him, would you make an exception in the case of rape, and he said, well, my understanding is that if a woman's legitimate, if she's being a subject to a legitimate rape, then the body shuts down, and it won't let itself get pregnant, and everyone, of course, said, you're a moron, what is wrong with you, stupid pig, scumbag, shut up. 
And uh, now the GOP is feeling the heat from all that blowback. And uh, if it weren't an election year, they probably wouldn't care, really. But because they have to look like they care, now there's this battle royale going on because Aiken's like, I'm not resigning. And he reminds me of Clay Davis in The Sh- the Wire. He's all, the GOP's like, well, why don't you resign? And Aiken's like, shit, after everything I've done for this party, you expect me to resign? Kiss my ass. So it's fun to see. It's fun to see those two sides of the GOP going at it. Uh, I shouldn't say two sides because he doesn't really have anybody standing with him. Not only is there no one stupid enough to align themselves with that mindset, although Mike Huckabee did say something similar recently. He's like, but he was Mike Huckabee. To be fair, was given it the old like, well, why should the fetus be punished for the horrible manner of his conception and yada yada yada. Um, but. Anyway, yeah, so the GOP is hammering Aiken right now, and he doesn't like it, and he's not resigning, so I'm just waiting to see how this all goes down, because it's going to be fun to watch how it all ends up. Uh, I would like to publicly thank the Duchess for reminding me that V for Vendetta is a good example of a positive anarchist movie, and there, there's anarchism presented in a positive light. Although, I will, I will again say what I said when the movie first came out, which is, as much as I love the movie, it's about resisting one corrupt dictatorship in one point in time and the book is much more about the 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 nature of human beings relating to government in general over human history and i wish that the movie had done more to show that tension between the individual and the government and the, the responsibility of anarchists to step up and and take responsibility for how the world is run rather than sort of sitting back and letting other people do that which is how the state gains so much of its power and if I'm going to ever, you know, share common ground with libertarians, I will say, hey, look, I'm opposed to the state, too, dude. I don't like the state having too much power. I mean, come on. Uh, and I, I'm not a total anti-statist, but um, yeah, whatever. Uh, isolator. Isolator got bought by some stupid fitness company. What is up with that? Actually, it got swiped because I wrote a tweet to the dude who created Isolator. And I was like, what's up with this, Isolator? You sold it. What's wrong with you? And he wrote back saying, I didn't sell it. It got swiped. Get off my back. And he was right, apparently. So um, I apologize for trying to call him out, but I wish he'd set up a mirror. I asked him if he was going to set up a mirror. He said he didn't respond. So what's up with that? You know what? I asked Jean Grey two questions, too. And she responded to the first one just saying, like, thank you for promoting me on Reddit. And then I was like, hey, what about this and that? And she never responded. So I'm like, is there something wrong with Twitter whereby when I ask a follow-up question, people are like, whatever, I'm not going to answer you. Or is that just like, I'm so famous, I don't have time. I mean, it might be time. I don't know. But if you have time to respond to my first stupid question, why don't you have time to respond to my second stupid question? Maybe it's because you'd respond with a hundred different stupid questions after that. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, I'm going to put up some pictures from Isolator uh, of what it used to be like and... Uh, it's got some bad words, so be careful. But everyone should know about Isolator, so look for that. You know, I don't like to talk much about the U.S. Uh, election stuff because I think there's bigger issues in the world. Uh, according to the Duchess, Noam Chomsky once said that um, you should spend five minutes deciding who you're going to vote for for president and then spend all the rest of your time doing other stuff that's more important. 
Um, but I can't help it. There's some interesting stuff that goes on. First of all, I'm a big fan of the Silver Sun pickups. I think they're an awesome indie rock group. And they recently asked the Romney campaign to stop using their song Panic Switch. Uh, we don't like people getting behind our backs using our music without our asking. And we don't like the Romney campaign, Silver Sun pickups lead singer-guitarist Brian Obear said in a statement issued Wednesday. We're nice, approachable people. We won't bite. Unless you're Mitt Romney, we were very close to just letting this go because the irony was too good. While he is inadvertently playing a song that describes his whole campaign, we doubt that Panic Switch really sends the message he intends. And uh, Romney spokeswoman Andrea Saul responded Wednesday stating, quote, The song was inadvertently played during event set up before Governor Romney arrived at the location. As anyone who attends Governor Romney's events knows, this is not a song we would have played intentionally. What song is it, Eric? Can you give us a taste of what the song is like? Of course I can. What a silly question. Yeah, I'll even turn it up when it gets to the drop. And I, I think one of the reasons I love the Silver Sun pickups, and certainly the reason I know about them to begin with, is because of Rock Band. I didn't really know who they were until I played Lazy Eye on Rock Band 2, I think it was. And ding, 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 ding. And yeah, they, I got into their music, and now I have their albums, and they're great. Um, but there was this whole thing about these other music acts who have also had to demand that Romney and other people stop using their music. Uh, so, for instance, Kanon uh, recently had to do uh, the Business Week headline was, can you really stop Mitt Romney from using your song? Uh, and so it said, it talked about other people besides the Silver Sun pickups. And it said, this year alone, the rapper Kanon implied that he might take legal action to prevent Romney from playing Wave and Flag at campaign events, and the co-writer of I Have the Tiger filed a suit to stop Newt Gingrich from using that song. Four years ago, Hart objected when Sarah Palin walked on stage to Barracuda, and Jackson Brown sued the McCain campaign and the Ohio Republican Party for putting his song Running on Empty in a television campaign ad. So, take that. Republicans ought to no, man. Look, unless you've got that group that did like, Bush was right. Uh, you're not going to find rockers who are willing to uh, support your point of view and give you permission to use their songs. And speaking of which, and I should thank the Duchess. She showed me this after I'd already found it somewhere else. But whatever. It's still cool that she offered to show me the link. Um yeah, Paul Ryan had this whole thing about, I love Rage Against the Machine. And Tom Morello wrote a piece on RollingStone.com, which was like, you suck! Stop using our music! You don't get to like us! Uh, he is the embodiment of the machine our music rages against, he says. Paul Ryan's love... This is Tom Morello writing. T Paul Ryan's love of Rage Against the Machine is amusing because he is the embodiment of the machine that our music has been raging against for two decades. Charles Manson loved the Beatles, but he didn't understand them. Governor Chris Christie loves Bruce Springsteen, but doesn't understand him. And Paul Ryan is clueless about his favorite band, Rage Against the Machine. So there you go. Hey, Paul Ryan, I got a little message for you, buddy. I should, I should have started that sample a little closer to the point I wanted to hit it at. But whatever. I can do it in editing. Yeah, do it in editing. Good call. I will fix that in editing. All right, speaking of Paul Ryan, uh, he's he, he's a flip-flopper. I hate that phrase because it implies that if you believed one thing 10 years ago and you believe something different now, then you're a flip-flopper. You don't have the courage of your convictions. But that's stupid because, as Muhammad Ali said, if you don't have if you have the same way of looking at the world, uh, at the age of 30 as you did at the age of 20, you've wasted 10 years of your life. And that's true about politics as well as anything else. However, um, if, if, if you say that you didn't do a thing and then you say, yes, I did do that thing, well, that's just stupid because that's 
That's that's that's a matter of fact. That's not a matter of opinion. So anyway, uh, Paul Ryan, the headline from New York Magazine is Paul Ryan denies taking stimulus money, then admits that he did. Oh, what do you know? Paul Ryan voted against President Obama's federal stimulus bill and has repeatedly attacked the legislation, calling it a wasteful spending spree and a monstrosity. Thus, the revelation that he and other sev- he and several other Republicans asked for stimulus funds for companies in their district caused a minor stir when it was first reported by the Wall Street Journal in 2010. The issue was revived this week when the Boston Globe reported that Ryan wrote four letters to Energy Secretary Stephen Chu requesting stimulus money for two companies in his district to develop green jobs, which were then both eventually awarded. In a 2010 interview, and again on Thursday, Ryan indignantly declared that he'd never do such a thing. Then he admitted several hours later that upon further investigation, he definitely did ask for stimulus funds. And this goes to show two things. Number one, this whole fanaticism about like, oh, you, you've got to swear up and down you would never do such a thing. And if someone admits that you did, then if someone finds that you did, then you have to be like, well, that's the reason that wasn't actually accepting stimulus funds. Or I was pressured to do that by someone else or blah, blah, blah. It's like when uh, Romney is talking about, well, my mandate and uh, health care in my Massachusetts days is very different from Obamacare. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it, it's this whole notion that there has to be this huge divide between yourself and the other party, even if there really is isn't a big divide, which goes to show that this whole Obamacare thing is a bunch of hooey anyway, because it was an idea that was proposed by like the National Review, and then it was supported and promoted by the Republicans during the Clinton administration, and then it was enacted by uh, Mitt Romney and all this other stuff, and so it was a Republican idea from start to finish, and now that it's in place, all the Republicans are like, well, that's not what we want, we want something even more namby-pamby and free market-based, It's just like cap-and-trade. Cap-and-trade, if you don't know, cap-and-trade was something that the Republicans and conservative forces in the United States were pushing for 20 years. And people in the environmentalist movement were like, no, start out by letting them pollute a certain amount? Absolutely not. That's bogus. And the conservatives were like, no, it's the best way to do it. Market solution. Yeah. And then when cap-and-trade started to become a political reality, Republicans started going, no, it's tax-and-trade. This is just another example of big government. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's the flip-flopping. That's the real flip-flopping that really goes on. It makes me sick. The other thing that's important for us to recognize about this Paul Ryan incident is that it shows that stimulus money, government spending is not inherently evil. It does good things. It helps to create jobs in green economy sectors. What a notion. Paul Ryan should now go instead, because what he's going to do, I haven't even paying attention to him. He, what he's been doing probably is saying, well, yeah, I did that, but I had to, and there were some companies, and I just a small little bit, and it still was a bad idea, and if I had to do it again, I wouldn't accept the money, and blah, blah, blah. What he should do is go, yeah, of course, this would destroy his chances of dis- differentiating himself from Obama, so this is why he can't do it politically, but he should say, look, that money was well spent. And, and I hope that all the stimulus money was that well spent, and I was wrong to oppose it and call it a monstrosity, and instead, it's not a wasteful spending spree. It's a, it's, a, it's a way to get people back to work. What a notion. The idea that government can't do that is just ludicrous. I mean, how do we get out of the Great Depression? I'm sorry, but we got out of the Great Depression in large part because of the Works Project Administration, and I'm going to keep saying that because apparently no one else is saying that, and everybody's rewriting history now going like, well, it was because of the records or blah, blah. And and it's it, 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 ah. sorry, the government can do good things, and one of the good things it can do is to spend tax dollars to put people to work fixing roads and uh, building buildings and 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 
positive stuff that needs to get done that's not being done by the private sector. How about building homes for the homeless? There's something we could all agree needs to happen. The private sector sure as hell is not doing it, so why don't we use tax dollars to hire homeless people to build houses for homeless people? Doesn't that just seem like an awesome... I mean, what's the problem there? Why is that a problem? The only reason that notion is radical or, or some sort of dangerous thing is because conservatives go, well, they deserve to be homeless, so they don't deserve my tax dollars to but get homes. And, and it makes me sick. Anyway, moving on. Um, July marked the worst month for Army suicides. This is from the Washington Post. Uh, 38 Army soldiers killed themselves in July, the worst month for suicides since the Army began releasing figures in 2009, according to Pentagon officials. If soldiers continue to take their lives at current the current rate, the Army will lose about 200 active-duty soldiers this year, a number that is significantly higher than any year in the past decade. In recent years, the Army has tried to lower its suicide rate by hiring hundreds of new mental health and substance abuse counselors, but it isn't clear that the additional resources have had an effect, and there is significant disagreement among mental health experts and military officers over how best to deal with the problem. Quote, the military really is trying hard, said Kim Rocco, a mental health social worker whose Marine husband committed suicide in 2005. Quote, but we need more money, more resources, and we need to make mental health care a higher priority. There are still too many gaps in care and too long of waits for soldiers seeking care. Other mental health experts expressed doubt that a more mental health resources would fix the problem. Quote, I don't think we can throw psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers at the problem and make it that much better, says Frank Ochberg, a clinical professor of psychiatry at Michigan State University. To lower the suicide rate, he says, uh, the military needs to reduce the stigma associated with mental illness. Quote, the culture does not make it easy to get help. End quote. Um, and I've said before many times, I think it's a disgrace how badly we treat veterans when they return to the United States. And whether you're in favor of current military action in Afghanistan or not, whether you supported the Iraq war or not, uh, there's no question. I think all of us can agree that once people come home, uh, they deserve treatment, especially for this post-traumatic stress disorder, which obviously claims a lot of lives. And it's just a, it's a sad state of affairs when uh, we don't give people the help they need. And I believe Ochberg's right when he says that the culture has to do with it because part of the military culture, from my understanding, and again, I've never been near the military, so all I know is what I've heard vets say, um, but I've read a lot of vet memoirs and I've, I've tried to absorb as much as I can from people who have served in the military. Uh, a lot of times there's this notion that, yeah, if you're, some people say PTSD is like um, um, pussy, uh, too small of a dick or something like that. Like the notion is that if you suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, you're just weak and you're, you're, you can't handle the, like a real man and all this other stuff. And so as a result, a lot of vets apparently uh, internalize it and they're like, oh, it's my bad. I should just man up. It's not that big a deal. You know, everybody has a bad day. Just shake it off. Come on, be a man. And in reality, these are serious clinical issues that deserve uh, professional help, but there is a stigma attached to that. So, you know, if, if the, uh, if the advice of a, an effete English teacher is, uh, that you hear on a podcast is any, uh, likely to have any effect, listen, go and get some help. Come on, seriously. I know what I'm talking about. I know what you're going through. No, of course, I don't know what you're going through, and that's the whole joke, and yada, yada, yada. And no, of course, I don't mean to imply through the use of that comical accent that it's anything to do with homosexuality or anything like that. No, 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 no. Anyway, uh, moving on. Just digging myself a hole. Why are you not talking about no dick joke? Win crowd back. No one wants to hear you talk about President Bush. I haven't even talked about President Bush, I don't think. Sorry, Bill Hicks' impression of a Chinese heckler. Um, 
Moving on. Drug dealers in Rio say no to crack. This is one of those stories you're like, what? No way. The, the, if The Wire taught us anything, it's that it's a market and it's just it's all in the game, yo. Apparently, it's not all in the game because the a- Associated Press had a big story about how a bunch of drug dealers are getting together and saying, let's stop selling crack. And they're doing it, apparently. Uh... It, it, you read the whole thing because it's just fascinating. It's going to be top three. Uh, but here's one paragraph. There was no crack on the rough wooden table displaying the goods for sale, and the addicts were gone. They talked about this crack um, market where people used to come and get high on crack. And now nobody's selling crack there. The change hadn't come from any police or public health campaign. Instead, the dealers themselves have stopped selling the drug in Mandela and nearby, I'm going to say this wrong, Jacarezinho, in a move that traffickers and others say will spread citywide within the next two years. And and out of the article now. This is this is because the dealers have seen the damage that crack does. So in this sense, we can say that crack dealers in Brazil are more ethical than General Motors and Microsoft. Because if any corporation in the United States saw such horrible effects of the thing that they sell, they would go, oh, well, that's too bad. Let's externalize the costs and keep selling it. But crack dealers in Brazil go, no, wait, we can't do that. It's harming our community. We have to stop selling this thing, even though it's bringing us money. What a notion. There you go. There's the title of this episode. Drug dealers in Brazil. Brazilian drug dealers more ethical than U.S. corporations. I got my title. Awesome. The other gangs are signing up, said attorney Flavia Froes. Her clients include the most notorious figures of Rio's underbelly, and she has been shuttling between them, visiting favelas and far-flung high-security prisons to talk up the idea. Quote, they're joining en masse. They realized that this experience with crack was not good, even though it was lucrative. The social costs were tremendous. This wasn't a drug for the rich. It was hitting their own communities. So there you go. Even though cash rules, they're still saying, cash doesn't rule everything around me. Maybe cash shouldn't rule every single part of our lives. Maybe there's a place for non-market values. What a notion. So why play that song then, Eric, if you don't believe that that's really the case? Because it rules almost everything around me. But cream is not as good an acronym as cream, so it wouldn't work. Anyway, um, you know, we've talked about Iceland before because Iceland was the place where they hired the white-collar criminal bounty hunters that we talked about several episodes back. Well, it turns out the IMF says that what Iceland has been doing has been working, and it's a model that we should follow. What? I can't believe it. What? A Scandinavian country doing things differently from how the U.S. does it, which serves then as a model for how the U.S. maybe ought to try doing it. What a crazy notion. When has that ever happened in the past? Iceland's commitment to its program, a decision to push losses onto bondholders instead of taxpayers. What a crazy idea! Because in the United States, we pushed all of the losses onto the taxpayers. It was 100% externalized costs. Lehman's collapse, uh, Bear Stearns, um, AIG, all of it. The taxpayers paid to bail all of it out, okay? And the safeguarding of a welfare system that shielded the unemployed from penury. Again, what a welfare, a functioning welfare system? But we have welfare here in the United States, Eric. I see the ads on Hulu all the time. They go... They just send you your welfare check. Sorry, I have to do a tangent now. Because on Hulu, when we watch The Daily Show and The Colbert Report on Hulu, we get subjected to certain ads over and over and over again. There's no doubt that the ads on Hulu are much more repetitive than they are on network television. So the ads we get on Hulu these days are, first of all, there's the Geico ads, which I just hate with bloody vomit. Because it's all Richard Simmons and that annoying 
lizard thing. And it, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. Richard Simmons, hey, swear with me. Bad, go away. It doesn't, it doesn't make me want to look up your insurance. And it just, uh, people are like, oh, it makes me hate the company, so it backfires. All they want to do is get in your head. And Geico's in my freaking head. I'm talking about him now. So there you go. Anyway, uh, there's that. There's the stupid uh, VW commercial with the dudes in the car and they're learning Spanish and fritas, whatever. Uh, and then there's this commercial we keep seeing, which is about how Clinton did welfare reform and then Obama gutted it. And there's all these pictures of hardworking white people. And the tagline says, now they just send you your welfare check. <laughs> and it's like, you don't have to train for a job. You don't have to get a job. Doesn't welfare for, doesn't work for welfare kind of sound like a job, only you don't get a decent pay or any benefits. What's the difference between having a job and welfare for or work for welfare? It's ridiculous. The whole notion is like you don't have to do anything. They just send you your welfare check. Well, if that's the case, I want a welfare check. If it's that easy, they just send it to you. Well, why aren't I getting one? I mean, if there's no restrictions at all, we should all be getting welfare checks. Woo! Free money from the government. Ah, Obama, you sucker. No, it's ridiculous. Uh, I don't even know why I started talking about that. So anyway, moving on. Um, so these things that Iceland did helped to propel the nation from collapse toward recovery, according to the Washington-based International Monetary Fund. Now, again, coming out of the article, let's make it clear here, people. The International Monetary Fund is not some group of leftist, uh, uh, you know, hippie types. Uh, ha Jun Chang and, and Eve Smith are not like the executive directors of the IMF, okay? Let's be very clear about this. All right, this is not some like cabal run by Paul Krugman and Joseph Stiglitz where they like sit around and go, how can we uh, punish success? <laughs> no, the IMF is regularly subject to massive protests by leftist forces who insist that it should be more democratic and less beneficial to the, or less, not less beneficial, but, but less deferential to moneyed interests. I mean, IMF does the bidding of its biggest funders, period, end of discussion, okay? So it's not as though, again, this isn't some wacky left-wing group saying, Iceland did a great job. The, when the IMF says, hey, this country did a good thing, business elites in the United States, if no one else, ought to pay attention and do what the IMF suggests. I mean, that just, it seems, it's basic. It's like if, if, if you were a six-year-old and you had a gun and a cop was like, I wouldn't wave that gun around near your mouth if I were you. Uh, what kind of six-year-old would go, shut up, what do you know? Right? But that's basically what's going on here. The IMF is like, I, look, I'm trying to keep you from having the same crash and meltdown as you had in 2008. And we're going waving a gun near our mouths going, what do you know? I don't care, shut up. Um, yeah, well, of course, the counterpoint to that is the, the, the collapse in 2008 wasn't bad business for Wall Street. Let me put it that way. How's that for a mind-blowing statement? Uh, Goldman Sachs, for instance, did quite well in the 2008 apocalypse. So the apocalypse can be profitable, right? Peace sells, but who's buying? As Megadeth once said, I don't remember any Megadeth songs. What was that one, the the Pied Piper song? What was it? Anyway, uh, that would make sense to ask that question, Eric, if anybody were here to answer it, but it's not, so it's not. Quote, Iceland has made significant achievements since the crisis. Daria V. Zakharova, IMF mission chief to the island, said in an interview, quote, we have a very positive outlook on growth, especially for this year and next year, because it appears to us that the growth is broad-based. What a notion. 
Iceland refused to protect creditors in its banks, which failed in 2008 after their debts bloated to 10 times the size of the economy. The island's subsequent decision to shield itself from a capital outflow by restricting currency movements allowed the government to ward off a speculative attack, cauterizing the economy's hemorrhaging. That helped the authorities focus on supporting households and businesses. What a notion! Again, supporting households and businesses. Uh, they're a bunch of socialists. Uh, who would think of such a thing? Blah, blah, blah. And I know what conservatives in the United States are going to say. If you say this, if you talk about this to conservative people in the United States, especially, you know, fiscal conservatives, they'll say, well, that's right. We shouldn't have bailed out the banks. We should have just let them fail. But again, as I've said before, that's stupid. No politician is ever going to vote for such a thing because it would mean the actual apocalypse of the entire economy. If we had let Lehman fail, if we had let AIG fail, uh, no, sorry, we let Lehman fail. Uh, if we had let AIG fail, if we had let all the, if we, I mean, Lehman was the one time when we played with fire and people saw how bad it got and people were like, I'm talking, when I say people, I'm talking about Hank Paulson and, and, and Geithner and, and uh, you know, those other pinheads, uh, Bernanke. Uh, they saw how bad it got so quickly and they were like, we can never do that again. Okay, let's all agree that that never happened. It's like on The Simpsons when they took the shortcut and then they cut to the car has like state fair banner draped across it and like a chicken and one of the wheels has been replaced with a wagon wheel or something. And Homer's like, let's never speak of the shortcut ever again. <laughs> That's exactly what Lehman Brothers was. Um, so I'm sorry, conservatives, it's not a viable option. Just let them fail. No, that's never going to happen. And the banks know it's never going to happen. I've said this before. The, the banks know that we are never going to let them fail. And as a result, that gives them extra credit with other banks because it means that they get to borrow at a rate that nobody else would ever get to borrow because they know there's no way they're ever going to default. Who's going to let them default? No one. That's who. Anyway, um, I would like to thank Dylan for sending me an article uh, from The Economist, which is headlined HF High Frequency Trading. Wait a second. Uh, this newspaper seldom finds itself restrained. This is, I'm reading right from the thing. Right? I want to make sure this isn't my commentary. Sometimes I'll write my commentary into the show notes, but I don't think that's what I've done here. I think this is actual thing from the... Uh, yeah, no, this is an actual quote from the article. Okay, The Economist. This newspaper seldom finds itself on the side of restraining either technology or markets. But in this case, there is a doubt whether the returns justify the risk. Society needs a stock market to allocate capital efficiently, rewarding the best companies with higher share prices. But high-frequency traders are not making decisions based on companies' future prospects. They are seeking to profit from tiny changes in price. And, and leaving the article right now, uh, as I've pointed out uh, uh, earlier in this show, or elsewhere in this podcast, uh, uh, they're also making decisions based on house plants and nipple directions. So, again, don't give me this hooey about markets being rational because they're not. Uh, back to the article. They might as well be trading baseball cards. The, they might as well be trading baseball cards. There you go. There's another. I have like 16 headlines for this episode of the podcast already. They might as well be trading baseball cards. That's what high-frequency trading is. Anytime anybody asks me, what's high-frequency trading? They, it's trading baseball cards. They might as well be trading baseball cards. That, According to The Economist, that is the benefit of high-frequency trading to the stock market. They might as well be trading baseball cards. The liquidity of benefits of such trading are all very well, but that liquidity can evaporate at times of stress. And it does can evaporate, does inevitably evaporate. And although high-frequency trading may make markets less volatile in normal times, it may add to the turbulence at the worst possible moment. Yes, it will. Will, again, 
will add to the turbulence at the worst possible moment. Um, so, I'm not insane. Thank you, Dylan, for reminding me that I'm not insane. Whenever I start in with this stuff, people are like, get your tinfoil hat out, Mr. P, whatever. Yeah, sure, the computers are deciding things based on house plans. You're just a crazy lunatic. But I'm not. I'm right. And people are starting to realize it, man. It's like when I was on the, I think it was the progressive Reddit recently, and it was like, or maybe it was economics, uh, and somebody posted something about like, uh, the notion of a free market is a myth or something like that. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like something Hajun Chang said. And I clicked on it and it was a quote from Hajun Chang. And I was like, yes, look, he's awesome. And other people agree. Hajun Chang, Hajun Chang. Uh, Stu also sent me an article about Standard Chartered, which is the name of the company. Uh, it, Standard Chartered reaches 217 million pound settlement. London traded shares in Standard Chartered rose. It rose. I'll get to that. Rose 5% on opening after the bank agreed on a 217 million pound, which is about $340 million, settlement with U.S. regulators over allegations that it covered up thousands of illegal money transfers for the Iranian government. Under the deal with the New York State Department of Financial Services, DFS, the British-based international bank will install a monitor for at least two years who will report directly to the regulator and evaluate the money laundering risk controls in its New York branch. The DFS surprised Standard Chartered last week when it accused the bank of being a rogue institution that schemed with the Iranian government and left the U.S. financial system vulnerable to terrorists, weapons dealers, drug kingpins, and corrupt regimes, end quote. Now, uh, two things. First of all, Charles Ferguson in Predator Nation, the section I'm reading now, happens to be also talking about banks that are doing business with Iran and other rogue nations and drug dealers and all sorts of other things. Um, yeah, page 175. In the service of rogue states and drug lords, kleptocratic political leaders, organized criminals, drug cartels, and rogue states engaged in nuclear weapons development or terrorism also require bank secrecy to conceal the size and sources of their funds and to give them secret access to payment systems. Many of the world's largest banks, both American and foreign, have only been too happy to help. So, sit on that. Uh, and the other thing to point out about this article is that their shares rose 5% when they reached this settlement about illegal money transfers for the Iranian government. The market in London said, well done on dealing with that Iranian illegal money transfer thing. We will reward you with a 5% bump on your shares. Not... Who, the market doesn't care that Standard Chartered was doing business with the Iranian government. The market has no opinion about that actual transaction. The only thing it cares about is how did it get resolved? How It's like a political thing. How did you spin this, this new development? Like with Ryan. How did Paul Ryan spin the thing about he took actual stimulus money? People don't care. The market doesn't care how... I shouldn't say people don't care. The market doesn't care about how Standard Chartered actually did business with the Iranian government illegally. What they care about, how did you do, how did you make the regulators go away? And they did. And that suggests to me when the market says, hey, look, they dealt with them. I mean, it, that says to me, the market says Standard Chartered got the better deal out of that. We're back to this equation from Fight Club. A times B times C equals X. If X is less than the call of a recall, less than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. That's what it's about. That's how these things get decided. Okay. So when Standard Chartered loses 217 million pounds, that's that's a blip on the scope. That's not a big deal to them, and that indicates we need to step up the prosecution on these companies so that we do take a bigger chunk out of them and maybe even lock some people up.
There was a new thing that was released from the Gallup organization that said, eh, "No Child Left Behind has a made has made American education worse or no different." Um, according to a new poll, more Americans, 29%, believe that education is worse because of No Child Left Behind Act than those who believe it is better off, 18, 16%. Another 38% said the act of Congress that changed the federal government's role in public schools by focusing on student achievement has made no difference, according to a Gallup's annual work and education poll. Um, now, I would say it's made education worse off. That's my opinion. If you want to know why I think that, I have written this big, long thing called A Profit Without Honors, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. Um, it, it, the business model of education is what the No Child Left Behind is all about. And I, I don't want to go on about this, but I will say one thing real quick. Let me read one more part of the article, and then I will read a part from this Profit Without Honors thing I wrote several years ago. Uh, another article, another paragraph in the article says, 22% of adults in households earning less than $30,000 a year are more likely to believe the law has made public education better, while 15% did not. So, like, a good, a chunk more, a, a significant portion of poor households believe that no Child Left Behind is doing a good job uh, compared to those who do not believe it's doing a good job. Uh, and that's a significant thing because I think that a lot of business model proponents will say that th these reforms need to happen because poor kids, and especially poor black kids and poor minority children, so-called minorities on a global scale, there are majorities, um, the whites are the minority in the global scale, right? Everybody knows that. That's why I say so-called minorities. Um, people will often say that that's why we need to make these changes. George W. Bush spent his whole first two years in office talking about how No Child Left Behind was necessary because of what he called, and this wasn't his phrase. I think it came from um, uh, Marion Wright Edelman, but I could be wrong. He didn't invent it. He used it from someone else, and sh I think that person borrowed it from Marion Wright Edelman. Don't quote me on that, but I know it's not Bush's. Uh, but he kept saying it's the the soft uh, bigotry of low expectations. This idea that if we don't demand more of students, if we don't make schools better for poor, especially black kids, um, then we're being racist and we're being bigoted. And I, I I'm I'm very sensitive to that. I don't ever want that to be the case. Um, so anyway, this is what I wrote in this thing, A Prophet Without Honors, which I wrote many years ago. This was from 2003, so this is quite a while ago. But um, I just want to read a chunk of it because it's directly applicable to this. In recent years, advocates of school choice, particularly those who favor the voucher system whereby parents of children in poorly performing schools receive funds to be used at private schools, leaving my writing from 2003, we've seen this in Louisiana recently. Uh, the voucher push, the privatization push, is has, if anything, increased since 2003 when I first wrote these words, but uh, that's just some whatever, modern connection. Uh, anyway, they've insisted that their struggle is motivated by a desire to help the most oppressed members of our society. A cynic might find it odd that people like George W. Bush, Lou Gerstner, and David T. Kearns, the former CEO of chairman of Xerox Corporation, men who spent their entire lives relentlessly and ruthlessly pursuing money and power, would suddenly take up the cause of black power and or class struggle. Such a cynic might suppose that these men have ulterior motives when they point out how badly the public schools have failed to deliver the American dream to poor kids in Compton. Such a cynic might believe that these men call attention to the glaring inequalities only when it happens to suit their own corporate, political, or career needs. But as we all know, cynicism is a relic of a bygone era, and there's no reason to call into question the motives of our nation's business and political leaders. Besides, many parents and civic leaders, actual advocates for the poor and disadvantaged, and I believe Jeffrey Canada from the Harlem Children's Zone falls into this category. I might even allow Michelle Rhee to be in this category. Uh, 
are supporting vouchers and school choice. They see the miserable state of the public schools in their districts and wishing for the best educational opportunities available. They believe that private schools offer a positive alternative. And there is no simple response from the other side of the discussion. It's hard to compare a dilapidated public school in East St. Louis with a shiny new private school across the Mississippi in St. Louis proper and say that the poor black kids in East St. Louis don't deserve better. So that's one thing I want to go ahead and admit right off the bat is that a lot of public schools suck and especially public schools in poor and African-American communities tend to suck and that's not okay. And I don't affiliate myself with people who are like, public schools are wonderful and they're awesome and magnificent uh, because they need work. They need institutional work. We need some institutional change to make schools better, especially in poor and black areas. However, is the business model of reform as crystallized in No Child Left Behind and Race to the Top, Obama's answer, are they the right way to go? No, absolutely not. And I'm also sick of hearing about people saying, well, if you don't support the business model of education, then you support the status quo. Uh-uh, there's a third way, and that's what I uh, advocate for. And the last thing I'll read from this piece I wrote in 2003 is this. The entire question of school choice rests on the assumption, school choice in terms of public versus private, vouchers, charter schools, that whole thing. Um, that entire question rests on the assumption that private schools do a better job than public schools because of their market-based nature. When in fact, there is a wide variety of reasons why many private schools do better than public schools in poor neighborhoods. Or not, as the case may be. It's not a foregone conclusion that private schools are always going to do a better job in a poor neighborhood than public schools will. But um, if you want to know more about what, what those reasons are and what I think and the real, you know, what I think really ought to change in schools, please read this piece, Profit Without Honors, and check out what I have to say there because I'm moving on, baby. Clovis Unified School District sued over abstinence-only sex education. Central Valley teenager Taylor Gimenti learned in her ninth grade sex education class that HIV-AIDS could be spread by kissing. A medically inaccurate statement. In the 2009 class, her mother said, Taylor was taught only about abstinence as protection against sexually transmitted diseases and unplanned pregnancies and given no information about condoms or contraception. That launched a quest by her mother, Micah Gimetti, uh, to change the Clovis Unified School District's high school sex education curriculum. Quote, I want there to be medically accurate, scientifically based education for all youth in Clovis Unified, said Gimetti, a health education instructor. If we don't give them the information, they won't be able to make good healthy decisions and this is another example out of the article now this is an example of people putting their ideology ahead of their intelligence if you because i think we can all agree and i it's a controversial topic i generally don't really talk about sex ed in schools because you know i'm a teacher and you know generally speaking i just tell people you know don't do it because that's whatever um it's actually what i believe anyway but we'll talk about that some other time maybe or not uh, but if what we really want is a lower number of student pregnancies, lower numbers of uh, teenage mothers and fathers, uh, a lower percentage of abortions and all that stuff, um, we, we, we should do what works to bring about those results. And abstinence-only education does not work. Okay, There have been dozens of research studies about this, and they've almost all come back exactly the same. Abstinence only doesn't work. Let me tell you something very clear. Okay, and I hate to do this because I don't like to get personal, but I think this is a really good example. Okay, If abstinence only education worked, Sarah Palin's daughter would never have gotten pregnant. Right? Let's just move on to killer robots. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up! <laughs>
I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Wanna kill all humans? Three items in the killer robots and etc. file this week. Uh, number one, Chameleon 2.0. American defense robot can creep into rooms and disguise itself. First of all, here's the thing. This article is from CUNY EDU, the City University of New York. Um, and... No, it's not. That's the Dao De Ching. I used the wrong link. Whoops. <laughs> I'm going to have to find the right link. <laughs> the Dao De Ching is all about killer robots. Did you not know that? Edit. Uh, no, so this is um, this is actually from the Daily Mail, which, okay, yeah, we should look at it with a bit of skepticism, but whatever. Um, for, you should always be on alert for articles that mention killer robots from movies. Whenever they do that, they're reporting on something that we ought to be worried about. Okay, so this robot talks about the Terminator and other movies. Uh, the robot made of soft silicone has been designed to infiltrate areas through small gaps before adapting its skin tone to that of its surroundings. While movie fans may see overtones of the sinister shape-shifting robot from the Terminator series, for the moment, this robot is still in prototype form and takes 30 seconds to change color. I gotta tell you, that doesn't, it's still in prototype and it takes 30 seconds. That doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't love to have a T-1000. Okay, that, that's not a, while X thinks this, Y is really that. That's not a proper construction of that, uh, sentence there. That, no. The, the second part of the sentence is supposed to disprove the first one. If you were to say, like, people who like balloons, while people who saw up might think that balloons will pull your house right out of its moorings, uh, a few balloons won't actually do that. That would be a proper construction of that phrase. But this that this has not done that. Anyway, it can walk, change color, and light up in the dark, and can even change temperature, which may make it less susceptible to heat-seeking sensors. Now let me ask you this. In what fantasy bizarro world can this be considered defense? I don't know of any situation where a robot that can change its color and temperature uh, and sneak into rooms, that's defense. We, we have to defend ourselves against things. Okay, it's offense. I mean, it's just about linguistics now. I'm sorry. The Department of Defense used to be called the War Department. And I think we should go back to calling it that, if for no other reason than because it's honest. It's not defense. This isn't a tool for defense. Ridiculous. Anyway, speaking of uh, what the military does, uh, there was an article in the Register from the UK, again, uh, that says, work for the military, question mark, don't be evil, says ethicist. Engineers should refuse to work on killer robots, says Australian ethicist Dr. Robert Sparrow, who was also a pirate played by Johnny Depp. Sparrow's definition of a killer robot includes the Predator drone, a weapon he finds objectionable because, quote, military robots are making it easier for governments to start wars, thinking that they won't incur any casualties on their own side. And generally speaking, that's what happens with drone warfare. And I pointed out on Reddit recently that, yeah... It, it, someone said, oh, it's a matter of time before the insurgents get a hold of these drones. I mean, we know that Iran got one of ours, right? Uh, so they're going to start using them against us. And then how will we feel? And I said, you know what? We're, we're going to start complaining about how cowardly they're being by sending the robots. And you know what? That's already uh, that's bound to happen. I think that's definitely going to We're going to be like, oh, they're sending a robot. That's not real warfare. Eh. But when we do it, it's fine, right? 
Anyway, back to the article. Sparrow thinks re-engineers, quote, can agree that we would all be better served if robots were being researched, designed, and built to confront some of the urgent social and environmental challenges facing humanity today rather than to kill or wield political power in foreign lands, end quote. I, I can't add anything to that. Absolutely we would. That's what we should be spending our tax dollars on, not camouflaging death robots that can change their temperature. Anyway, moving on. Uh, now, that's not... To, okay, let me back off of that for a second, because it's not as though a camouflaging, temperature-changing robot couldn't be useful for human needs. But I don't think that's generally what we're going to do with it. I think we're probably going to use those things to crawl into huts in rural Pakistan and kill people. Uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, synthetic skin for animatronic robots gets more realistic. This is the headline from tested.com. I mean, you can always rely on tested.com or tested. It's probably tested, actually. Tested, that sounds like a test preparation publication, but this is probably just tested.com. That makes a lot more sense. It's like on The Simpsons when Homer's like, Lisa says, I wish you'd just keep more of an open mind, Dad, and accept other cultures. And Homer goes, other cultures are fine. I'm just, and he's in a, they're in a new age remedy store. And so Homer picks up something from the shelf. He goes, all I'm saying is I can get through life without needing a toothbrush. Anyway, uh, physical face cloning is a Disney research project. Let me say that again. <laughs> physical face cloning is a Disney research project. The... First of all, in case you don't know, Disney has an army of feral cats in California. I'm not li- look this. I'm not lying. It's true. Look it up. An army of feral cats that patrol Disneyland after dark, uh, and there's like a city underneath Disney World that with a fire department, jail cells, everything. Um, so and and that's I don't even know what they've got at Celebration. I I would love to if anybody ever. How about somebody who worked at Celebration, like, who knows something about Celebration? Not just like, I took tickets at the front. Uh, I would love to have an AMA with somebody who worked at Celebration, like, worked in the belly of Celebration. Because I I, I can't wait to find out everything there is to know about Celebration Florida. That's their city that Disney made. And it's like, it's like if Disney World was a city. And it's like, well, I might as well just live in Disney World. Uh, (laughs) I would love to know more about Celebration. I've never actually been there, which is crazy because I lived in Florida for many years, but I didn't really know what Celebration was when I lived in Florida. I think we should stop. That's it. Next road trip, we're going to Celebration. Who wants to meet us in Celebration, Florida? That's going to be awesome. Wait for the movie about that, baby. Actually, Disney will never allow us to make that movie. The man with the big mouse ears is going to tell us no. Back to the article. Physical fa- <laughs> I can't even get through the sentence. <clears throat> Professional Colbert Physical face cloning is a Disney research project to explore new ways to design and fabricate synthetic skin for animatronic actors. The project uses a combination of captured 3D facial expressions and physics-based simulation to optimize the skin for robotic faces. Uh, And I think I owe Jason a big thank you for this article because I'm pretty sure he sent it to me. Uh, A lot of people send me cool stuff on the email, and I appreciate it. Thank you, people. I don't use everything I get on email and Twitter, but I do appreciate hearing it all because some of it's awesome and the kind of thing I want to report on the show some of it's not and but i appreciate all of it and let me judge don't you decide whether you think it's good or not i mean obviously if you think it's good blah 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 whatever um but here's the crazy thing about disney animatronic research uh and physical face cloning i actually really like disney animatronic robots for some reason i've always enjoyed the animatronic robots especially the ones at epcot uh, I was just, I, when I was a kid, I was fascinated with Epcot, even more than Disney World. 
Uh, for Disney World, it felt like they were just trying to replicate the feelings of like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride and the Peter Pan ride and Pirates of the Caribbean. It was all about the movies and stuff, and I was never that into those movies, but I was always way into like imagination and futurology. So I loved Epcot Center because they had a ride about imagination, and they had a ride about... They had one called The Land, which of course is the least authentic representation of what farming actually is. But I thought it was so cool because it was like, here's the way we'll be farming on the moon. And they had the world of tomorrow. And it was like, here's the way we're going to live in 200 years. And, and I was always way into that. Uh, here's what space travel is going to be like when it's commercialized and all that stuff. And I was always blown away by it. So I loved Epcot. I liked Epcot more than Disney World when I was living near it. And, and then I started to become politically active and aware and stuff. And I went to Epcot again after that sort of coming of age moment where I started to realize everything that was wrong with the world. And I realized that Epcot would be the perfect place for a super awesome protest. And I'm going to do this someday, but I have no idea how I'm going to do it or who I'm going to do it with or when I'm going to do it. Um, maybe I'll never do it. But, but here's the idea. Um, Epcot is divided into two places. There's the World of Tomorrow, which is in the front. And then in the back, there's the panorama of countries. Uh, I don't know how many there are of each. Let's say there's 12 of the World of Tomorrow exhibits and then there's 12 countries in the back. What you do is, uh, and I should also say as way of background, uh, the countries are like the United States, France, Germany, China. They probably have some African country there by now, uh, Canada, etc. Uh, each of the World of Tomorrow exhibits is sponsored by a different company. So I know that Kodak for a while was sponsoring the Imagination one, and The Land, I think, may have been brought to you by Kraft Foods or something like that. Like Each of them had this big corporate sponsor. Here's my protest idea. You get 24 people or however many there are, for one person at each exhibit. Actually, you need 25. Um, more than 25. You probably need like 27 or so. 30. Let's make it 30 just for the sake of round numbers. Um, anyway, everybody wears two shirts. Uh, the outside shirt says, We Heart Epcot. No, no, sorry. The inside shirt says, We Heart Epcot. And then the outside shirt is whatever you want to wear. Just some regular nondescript shirt. Um, you go about the, your day and you have fun at Epcot because it's a fun place, right? You ride the rides and all the stuff. And, you know, if you're... You probably do what I did on my last visit to Epcot, like cluck your tongues, like, oh, that's so bogus. Oh, that's a corporatized way of presenting that. Oh, that's not accurate. Oh, whatever. Or you can resist that cynical filter and just have fun on the rides. No, not allowed. Absolutely not. Deconstruct everything, including that Mexican restaurant menu. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There's an Onion article. I'm not going to link to it. You have to go find it yourself. Anyway, that's my brain all the time. Um, so here's what you do. Yeah, so you go and you have fun at Epcot Center during the day, and then at like 3 p.m., you, you set your watches, everybody synchronizes, and at 3 p.m., you have one person at each of the exhibits and one person at each of the countries, and they take off their outer shirts, and they everybody's wearing a shirt that says, We Heart Epcot. And you hand out little flyers that has information about the companies that are sponsoring each of these World of Tomorrow exhibits and nasty things done by the countries in each of the country exhibits. And it's just a matter of consciousness raising. You're just trying to let people know, look, these rides are fun, this stuff is great, but there's other stuff you should also know that that Epcot Center is not going to tell you about. And so you could talk about all the things Kraft does to disempower you know, subsistence farmers in the third world. Or you talk about all the things that uh, China does, the human rights violators or whatever, and human rights abuses that China is guilty of. <laughs> what China does to human rights violators. Um, it, it, it promotes them in government, I would think. Anyway, this would be an awesome thing because you could have people in your group pretending to just be tourists filming the whole thing. That's why you have the extra people who aren't part of the protest, right? You disseminate information and you do it under the guise of loving what Disney is all about, but 
of course, you will instantly find the repressive state apparatus. You will have cops appear next to you in a matter of seconds. And that'll be an amazing thing for people to see is the cops dragging away people who are just trying to say, we love Disney and hand people information because it will show that Disney doesn't actually want anybody to have information except the information they want to give out. Uh, and it would just be an amazing spectacle. Don't you think that would be a really cool thing to do? It would reveal the true nature of the system in so many ways, man. It would be so awesome. We'll make it happen someday, uh, man. One, two, one, two, uh. All right, this week I want to give a thanks to JT because he sent me this thing from a guy called Hobson, and I don't really know anything about him yet. Uh, I listened to a couple of samples of his stuff on um, Amazon.com, but his previous work appears to be a lot of this sort of odd future horrorcore type thing of like, I'm weird, freaky, I talk about killing people all the time, and I'm not really so into that, but... He's got a series of tracks out called The Ill Mind of Hobson, which really impressed me. Um, and so I'm going to play you a bit from The Ill Mind of Hobson number five, where he sort of goes off on hip hop and he gets into some deep stuff. I don't like the approach that he takes toward talking about women in hip hop because he's sort of he's in this party and he's talking. Each of the three verses is directed toward one sort of prototypical member of the hip hop community. And one of the first one that I'll play you a sample from is directed toward the sort of white, you know, hipster wannabe hip hop head. Uh, the second verse is toward a woman who's sort of down with hip hop. And then the third is to a young black man in the world of hip hop. And each of them is very critical and very nasty and very acerbic. And the, the one. The second verse is very much about like, oh, you women are sluts and you should stop being so easy and trying to screw every man that comes along, yada, yada, yada. Um, And it's not that he's being specially harsh on the women, but that sort of gender nastiness, uh, I'm not cool with that. I think it's a... It's a it's a skewed way and it's an unhealthy approach to that sort of thing. But I I love what he says in the first and third verses. So maybe that's not fair of me. But whatever. Um, let me play the little selection from this first verse here. Is that all you think life really is? Well, if so, then you're a f- idiot. I honestly feel like grabbing your head and hitting it. Matter of fact, you don't even deserve a brain. Give me it. Do you even have any goals aside from bagging these? Ho- and packing the ball will let me guess no you're only in school because your parents make you go and all you do is play beer pong and hang out with the bros yo society's got you living for a whack cause you're a f***ing adult with no skills at all you don't read any books or play ball you don't draw you literally do nothing at all Still you fiend for the glamorous fruits you don't have Cause you idolize rappers that do And all they say is I got money in a stack to the roof And now you think that it's gonna magically just happen to you? How? Your lazy ass Yeah, that's, I mean, that's that some type of stuff I really have been waiting to hear from someone in hip-hop for a while Um, And, I mean, don't get me wrong There's lots of people who critique the game And Nas said hip-hop is dead But there hasn't been a... There hasn't been anybody willing to step up to the latest wave of rappers, and I'm including Eminem in this, and maybe that's not fair, but maybe I should say the people who follow Eminem. Uh, this attitude of like, it's, it, you know what? I, I'm wrong. It's not that there hasn't been anybody who's said that, uh, because M1 said it in the uh, Hip Hop Beyond Beats and Rhymes documentary. There's one point where he looks in the camera and he goes, I know you, white boys. I know you. It's as put on as a fitted baseball cap. And if you don't understand why I am the way I am, there's no way I could ever explain it to you. And I know you 
you white boys. Because I'm sorry to say it, because I was like that for many years. I thought it was just about how you walk and the words you say and certain surface elements. And it's not. If you read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, he talks about the six steps. And you have to walk backwards through them, most of us, till you get to the core. Why am I doing this? And the point that he's making here about how hip-hop at its best is about so much more. It's about having goals. It's about reading books. It's about going to school for a reason. I mean, Run DMC said, uh, since kindergarten, I acquired the knowledge. And after 12th grade, I went straight to college. And I'm sorry to say that so many people are like, oh, college dropout, whatever. Woo! Uh, because there's a sense in which people don't get the 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 driving the the Carter Woodson element of hip hop. There's very few people who will take a uh, Booker T Washington look at what hip hop could be. And I don't mean Booker T in a sense of like, oh, he wasn't the WB Du Bois. Now most people, when they hear me say that, will have no idea what I'm talking about with either of them. So I'm channeling my inner Hobson now, I guess. You don't even know what I'm saying. Go read a book by Booker T Washington and read a book by WB Du Bois, and then you'll know what the hell I'm talking about in the first place. But the point is that look. Booker, I had a conversation with someone a long time ago. I, I wish I remembered who. She and I were talking about Martin and Malcolm and then Booker T and, and WEB. And I was like, and I, you know, we both agree that they really weren't as similar as everyone makes to make it seem. Beef is a thing that everyone loves to promote. And unfortunately for that hyper-sensationalistic way of looking at things, that's not really the way it tends to be. Malcolm and Martin agreed on more than they disagreed on. Yeah? So the same is true about WB and Booker T. The point is that... uh. What was my point? Um, I think Hobson's doing something very cool now, and while his past work hasn't impressed me too much, I am very intrigued to see his new stuff, and apparently he did a track where he was working, he was did an album with Easy es label or something like that. I, don't, I looked into his history, and I was like, whatever. It sounds like a lot of industry hoopla. I don't really care. Um, but he obviously has lyrical skills, and this is the key, he is saying things that I want to hear. So I'm intrigued to see what he comes out with next. Thanks, JT, for uh, hipping me to the Hobson thing. And let's talk about the quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end is near. But don't panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. This week's quote comes from Starhawk. Um... Who, how do I describe Starhawk? I don't even know how to describe her. I'll read the summary from WikiQuote. She was born in 1951. She is an American writer, social activist, and pagan in the reclaiming tradition. And that term, reclaiming, has like a whole technical definition in neo-paganism stuff. Reclaiming what witchery, what witchcraft is and what it isn't. And I don't really know much about it, so I'm not even going to comment on it. The cool thing about Starhawk, in addition to the fact that she's promoting a feminist vision of goddess worship, I guess. I've never really been into that whole thing. I'm not going to say, when someone sneezes, I don't go, goddess bless you or any of that. I think it's kind of stupid. Just, I, I, not any more stupid, I suppose, than saying God bless you, but that's why I say Gesundheit or Alhamdulillah or whatever. Um, but anyway, and I know Alhamdulillah is the Islamic version of God bless you, but the point is that I say it because it screws the people and whatever. Um, <laughs> when we are trying to let people know that the spirits trying to kill them with their sneezing is not a cause to worry, I think that a German health-based response is better than a Judeo-Christian God bless you response. <laughs> Whatever. The point, the thing I really like about Starhawk is that she's always been an activist, and she's been involved in political activism, which I think is very, very cool. So this was a quote I found from her, which I thought was awesome. In 2003, she wrote a piece called Toward an Activist Spirituality. 
And in it, she says, quote, No sane person with a life really wants to be a political activist. When activism is exciting, it tends to involve the risk of bodily harm or incarceration. And when it's safe, it is often tedious, dry, and boring. Sound like any podcasts you know? Uh, activism tends to put one into contact with extremely unpleasant people, whether they are media interviewers, riot cops, or at times your fellow activists. Or annoying people on podcasts like me. All right, whatever. That's it, people. We almost made it under an hour, but not quite. Whatever. We're scaling back from the 90-minute shows we were doing a month ago. Show notes and everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, didacticsynapsefbesp.org slash synapse. Um, my website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff. Shoutouts this week go to Dylan for the high-frequency trading article and Stu for the standard chartered story and Turtle. 502 for retweeting the show and for uh, retweeting stuff about paper action master zulu and heidi p and everybody else who gave awesome feedback on our epic road trip movie uh shout outs again to jt for the hobson thing and yeah everybody else who listens and comments and puts up reviews at itunes i really appreciate it i don't have a lot of time to edit this thing as you know so i apologize if there are dumb things that i forgot to cut out i'm a very busy man deal with it listen i don't have time to play with the phone here i got a lot of stuff i gotta get done thanks for listening people please get in touch with feedback or questions esp at fbsp.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. And also, if you're on Steam and you want to play Counter-Strike Global Offensive, get in touch with me, Deuce Gath.